Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey everyone, this is Mark and welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. I'm joined today by my friend Todd Waldron. How are you doing, Todd? I'm great, Mark. It's good to catch up. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been been too long, my friend. What uh, what's you've you you've got uh, a busy schedule still. I think you're going to finish up your schooling here in uh, this summer, right? So, but but in the interim, you still got family, rough grouse society, American Woodcock Society, and school and everything else, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the thick of it right now, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, in fourth semester with school going really well, still studying sustainability, loving it. One more semester to go. I'll be wrapped up in July and looking forward to this summer, you know, August, uh, I'll be done. Hope to be doing some camping and fishing trips and then just feeling um, really excited about next fall, having some more time to get back out and enjoy all the things that we love to do outdoors. Uh, But in the interim, it's been good, been busy. Uh, works good and uh, yeah, good to be here. And uh, I've, you know, I've been following your uh, social media stuff. You got some great stuff going on, so uh, just glad to be here sharing it with you. Yeah, good to hear. Yeah, it's uh, we've we've had fun this winter here, uh, getting out on the ice uh, as part of the Hard Water Hunter series, doing some some education on that front, uh, icing a few uh, whitefish and and northern pike, and, and never as many as as you want. But uh, have you have you got you've gotten out and doing some ice fishing too, right? I, I have. Yeah. So I've, I've been out a couple of times, uh, fishing on a local lake here for, for lake trout and landlocked salmon. And so just a few hours at a time here and there, just going out, punching some holes and doing some jigging. Um, and it's been really good. I've, I've enjoyed it. I found that with a busy schedule, even an hour outdoors, uh, like that can mean the world of difference emotionally in just terms of like feeling good about the winter and just taking a break. Um, so anytime you can get outdoors on the ice in the winter or whatever you like to do with the winter, it's fun, whether it's snowshoeing or skiing or hiking. Um, I've got a snowshoe hare hunt coming up in a couple of weeks um, with my cousin, Jamie Frazier, so, and a couple of other folks. So going to look forward to that. That's wrapping up small game season here in New York. That's um, the last weekend of February. So looking, that'll be a fun day. That sounds sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd like to get up and uh, head out with Lee and do some uh, do some snowshoe air, air hunting. Uh, I don't know if it'll it'll be in the schedule or not. But actually, she uh, and uh, her boyfriend Matt came down and did some spearing with us a few weeks ago. So that was uh, that was fun. So why don't we just jump right into it? Um, today we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a conversation. Uh, the The focus of the podcast is is with the guys over at the North American Non Lead Partnership. Uh, it's Andrew Clare, Leland Brown, and Chris Parrish. Uh, Todd, I know you you know these guys. Um, I I really you know I've been seeing them and and the work they've been doing for for many years. I, I really. I think it's it was it's a good conversation. I really like the work they're doing from the standpoint of it's all about focusing on on non toxic ammunition, uh, both single projectile and, and and shot shells. But from the standpoint of um, just voluntary focus with 
the the hunting community and and I think I think that's really a good way to go about it rather than pushing for legislative mandates uh, which you know in the right situations can can be effective but I think there are also unintended consequences of that approach and these guys and their organization is really about doing the research uh, doing the awareness building uh, having a coalition of partners of which modern carnivore is now a partner of the uh, of the the partnership um, to really raise the awareness with people. And that's the purpose of today's podcast. And I think people are going to really find this interesting on the approach of, um, of non-toxic shot and the importance of it and what, what their research shows. I can't wait to listen to this podcast. Like, you know, I have known these folks kind of just through corresponding with them through emails and a few calls for a, a few years now. And like you, like I really like their style and approach around um, how to approach this conversation in a voluntary measure way. I love their educational outpiece around it, um, you know, focusing on education, um, how, how hunters and anglers can get involved in this conversation, um, how they can participate in the non-toxic shot kind of um, convo and and what they can do personally so like i I just think that their approach is really solid um i've always liked and respected them very much like what they're doing and uh glad to um see that they're on the podcast and look forward to giving it a listen yeah absolutely well why don't we uh jump right into it with uh andrew leland and chris from the north american non-lead partnership everyone Today, I am uh, happy to, uh, to introduce a, a few gentlemen we've got here in the studio, or remotely, so to speak. Uh, they are from the North American Non-Lead Partnership, and uh, I'll just let them introduce themselves. Uh, Andrew, what, why don't we start with you, since, uh, since you reached out to me initially? All right. Thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I'd say reaching out is a strong term. You know, I first met you at the bonfire and rendezvous. So glad we could uh, get together and meet out um, on your podcast here. Uh, I, as I, you said, I work for the North American non-lead partnership. The organization I work for is Great Basin Institute, and I'm based out of Southern California. Uh, we go all across the state with that. And I'm originally from Michigan as well. So um, awesome. Well, go ahead. glad to have you here. How about you, Leland? Oh, yeah. Uh, Leland Brown, uh, one of the co-founders of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And um, I actually work for the Oregon Zoo and run a program up in Oregon, uh, working with our fellow hunters about um, using non-lead ammunition and working with Chris and a few others co-founded the partnership um, to keep that kind of effort moving across the continent here. Um, so that's the, the start of it. <laughs> and I'm Chris Parrish. I work for the Peregrine Fund and also one of the co-founders of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And uh, originally from uh, beautiful uh, uh, foothills of Bakersfield, California, uh, transplanted to Arizona in 1991. And yeah, been there until... Just a couple weeks ago, now I'm in Boise, Idaho. Made famous <clears throat> by Buck Owens. That's right. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, good. Um, well, appreciate having you guys here to talk about the work you're doing today. So, you know, maybe just start by giving me a little bit of an insight and everyone, um, this is a partnership. It's a it's a nonprofit, I presume. So the North American Non-Lead Partnership, but you guys all have your day jobs from Great Basin Institute to the Peregrine Fund to the Oregon Zoo, right? And so is this, are each of those organizations partners in this in this uh, entity? Pretty much. And, and it's more of a, a true partnership. It's it we're actually not uh, individual nonprofit. It's it's each of the organizations and I think there's over forty at this point that have joined at some level um, as partners in the partnership. And and so we we really are just kind of Chris and I, especially over the last few years, and Andrew um, helping now that he's come on board, really kind of working on on building that cooperation across all these different partners and how we talk about the use of non-lead ammo and and how we work with our fellow hunters and sharing information so that the so hunters, hunters can make a choice using the best available information that's out there. Okay, so it is really focused on hunters. Um, it's it's this partnership of forty organizations across the country. What is the mission of what you're trying to do? Well, the the non lead partnership was formed to preserve our our hunting and wildlife conservation heritage, and those those two things are so closely entwined. It's not one or the other, right? It's it's continuing our hunting traditions, expanding our hunting traditions to folks who maybe have not hunted before, um, and continuing the wildlife conservation. That's the foundation of modern hunting. Um, you know, when we talk about hunting in, in the U.S. or in North America, what we're talking about is participating in the ecosystem and the landscape and contributing to conservation efforts of wildlife, whether that's species conservation, habitat conservation, um, really across the board. Hunters have, have been at the forefront of a lot of that for over 100 years. And, and when we're talking about this, what we're talking about is a choice that every individual has and in, in the type of ammunition that they use. And we want to share the information of how that's a benefit to wildlife and habitat stewardship, ecosystem health, and how that helps to promote the future of hunting as well. So you said a key word there, and that's one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you about and 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 I've become aware of over the last few years. You know, I, I first, I, I don't think I mentioned it yet, I, I first became aware of you out, out in Montana uh, at, a, at a BHA rendezvous, you know, five, six years ago when you were out there and had a booth and had your, your ballistics gel there mm-hmm. and you're showing fragmentation, et cetera. But what, what you're advocating for is is really and what you're trying to do as I see it is is raise awareness understanding and educate the hunting community around the choices and around the impacts that that occur based on your choice of ammunition is that is that a fair statement I think it I think it is and and you know I'll I'll back it up a little bit and just say that you know we were hunters and anglers most of us long before we went into the professional uh, realm of being a wildlife biologist a scientist or uh, all the different things that that we do professionally 
Um, I like to just say that this this consortium, this collaborative effort, um, this partnership is hunters leading the way in conservation. Our primary goal is to share information that because of our professional life, we actually have um, some some really uh, at home insights from the science because we've conducted a lot of the science. And so it's best to hear it from the horse's at, I mean, mouth. Um, so <laughs> I think and, and that's, you know, really, that's the value. The value is we have hunters sharing information with hunters. And uh, we also focus on wildlife management agencies because they're the ones who manage hunting. And our sole focus and goal is to share information direct from the science to hunters and organizations so that they can make informed decisions. Great. So, you know, I think I had mentioned you guys before that, you know, we've got uh, a mixture of of uh, competencies and, and understanding about hunting in, in the audience here. And, and, but a lot, a lot of people are, are relatively new to hunting. People who are curious about starting to hunt. Um, so if you guys don't mind, let's just back up the train all the way to square one. And, and, you know, we're talking about ammunition in guns. So um, I don't want to go too deep here. I know you guys aren't ballistics experts, but maybe just give us a quick summary uh, of, of the of the anatomy of of a of a of a um, cartridge. And you, most of your work, to clarify, most of your work is 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 uh, you're looking at cartridges for rifles. You're not looking generally at shot from from shotguns. Is that accurate, or, or are you doing a little bit more the shotgun stuff now? It's it's turned into a bit more of a combination at this point, I think, um, in part because a lot of people have questions about shot as well, although there's a lot more information and awareness about how exposure through shot happens with wildlife. Um, one of the reasons we focus on single projectile, whether that's from a muzzle loader, a shotgun slug, or a rifle, is because awareness of what that pathway actually is Um just isn't isn't out there as much and people have a, a kind of limited understanding of how that exposure pathway works and how that could how that one projectile could have any potential impact on wildlife it's only one right so how could that happen um, and that's how we, we go through a lot of that with that single projectile due to the fact that there isn't as much information or knowledge out there within the community Okay, so so new hunter is making a decision that they're going to hunt. Let's just, for argument's sake, we'll just say white-tailed deer, the, the most common, uh, you know, large game animal um, hunted in 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 the U.S. Um, they're going to use a single projectile if they're not doing archery. They're not. They're going to use a single projectile of either a rifle or a muzzleloader. So let's just set muzzleloader aside for a moment. Let's look at like cartridges of rifles. What's what's what are the things that make up a cartridge, and what are you guys concerned about and looking at? So I mean, when we're talking about the the cartridge, we're talking about basically four components right there is a primer the case the powder and the bullet or projectile what we're looking at specifically is the bullet because that's the part of the cartridge that interacts with the animals that we're hunting everything else is happening in the firearm the projectile is the only thing that touches that animal and the thing we rely on to be effective 
to actually kill the animal quickly and humanely so that we can't take advantage of that harvest and get the food out of it. Um, it's also the part that creates changes in the landscape, like what we're talking about here, the potential for exposure from lead, because historically lead was the material of choice for the core of centerfire rifle um, with the advent of smokeless powder which is what's used in a centerfire rifle for harvesting deer and a modern firearm um, copper jacketing and then a lead core um, that's soft enough to expand and create enough of a wound channel to kill the animal quickly and humanely um, so what we're talking about is is that projectile itself and how that performs and what new technologies are available to take advantage of to get the performance we want and need without any of the unintended consequences that may happen with lead. So the projectile historically for hundreds of years has been made out of lead. It's cheap, it's effective, it's dense, it performs it performs rather well as, as, a, as a material for killing an animal, right? Um, we now have new technologies coming into play. We now have new research coming into play that you guys are doing. And we also can put it in context of broader uh, modern lifestyle where lead has been removed out of paint, out of... Uh, automobile fuel out of a lot of things, right? And so you guys are focusing on the projectile and what are the impacts of lead versus non-lead or non-toxic type of projectiles. So you're doing research, you're doing advocacy, education, et cetera. Maybe talk a little bit about the the research that that you've been doing. Like what what was the genesis of that in terms of why you wanted to look at it and what are the types of things you're finding when it comes to using lead as that projectile? I can jump on that one. Um, <clears throat> for me, it was working in, in northern Arizona and um, working with the species of vulture. As soon as I say the name, people go, oh, this makes sense. He's with the California condor. <laughs> and thus dumps out the bucket of politics that accompany ESA management. But here, I'm going to keep it simple. We saw a, a corresponding increase, drastic increase in lead levels in these birds that we monitor. And the key point about our monitoring is that we monitor these birds at an individual basis. So when we say we know something about this population that we study, it's because we have transmitters on them, both GPS and VHF transmitters. We track them wherever they go with a team of biologists and then the, the, uh, also the data from the GPS transmitters, knowing exactly where these birds were prior to our discovery that they had a high lead level. <clears throat> that corresponding high increase in lead level annually beginning in about fall 2002 um, happened and it peaked during the deer season. So we asked the basic question is, where in the world would this lead be coming from? 
how is it that 80% of these birds in this population show really high levels and start asking questions about sources. So we looked into soil samples. We looked into water samples. We looked into tissue samples of the, the types of items that the condors would eat. And we found that uh, we weren't finding the lead there. And then we said, well, what about wounding loss? What about if an animal shot and unrecovered and maybe that's where they're getting it? Well, we know from other studies that wounding loss only accounts for about 10, 11% of <clears throat> of those animals that are that are hunted and that wouldn't explain how much lead there was so we asked the real basic question how many fragments can there be in a carcass that shot with a single centerfire rifle bullet in calibers from 243 up to the magnums so we went and did a study in Wyoming, we shot 30 deer. We did two separate studies, actually. And the first one, we started and we x-rayed the animals whole. We x-rayed the gut piles and we x-rayed the packaged meat all the way through that process. And, and what astounded me as a, as a lifelong hunter, not as a biologist, but as a lifelong hunter, is we always talk about weight retention. And everybody seems to know about weight retention, like, oh, this bullet retains 68% of its mass. That's what the manufacturers say. And when you collect that bullet out of a, out of a carcass, you look at it and you say, yeah, it, it did its work. But I had never weighed a bullet <clears throat> prior to this, and I'd never thought about the amount of that mass that was lost. So where did the other 20% go, 30% go? And that was revealed by the x-rays. We x-rayed the animals whole, then we x-rayed the gut piles. And some of those gut piles, and again, from animals shot with a single bullet, um, like a you know 168 grain soft, uh, soft tip lead nose bullet, uh, could uh, retain 68% of its mass, yielded as many as 400 fragments in the extreme cases. And those fragments and the pictures, I encourage people to go on to the, the website of our one of our partners, Institute for Wildlife Studies, huntingwithnonlead.org. Take a look at those studies. You can see the pictures for yourself. They speak a thousand words and they look like thousands of fragments. And it, it's shocking when you look at that. And so that really, uh, um, I guess, represented a potential pathway for lead to get into scavenging wildlife. And that's why we're focused on just hunting ammunition, because that's how that is one of the pathways where lead can get into the food chain. And that was a long answer, and I'm sure I made some real big leaps there. So my, no, my guys good. here will back me <laughs> yeah. up. Just, I mean, just real quick on that. One of the really critical <clears throat> things to remember here, and, and one of the reasons why this kind of was all figured out, is because there were hunters involved. Chris being a hunter, others involved in that program being hunters were thinking about this critically and had enough knowledge around their own history and experience of hunting to, to really think critically about it. And then also to think critically about what to do with that information, which is the next step. Um, That's the key. But having hunters involved in the research is so important because it, it really helps us get a much clearer picture of what's happening. If there hadn't been been folks who hunted involved in those efforts, uh, I, who knows how that would have, how long, one, how long that would have taken, and then how those um, investigations would have been conducted. Um, and then what those results may have, how those results may have been interpreted. Well, and that's what I really, in, in doing some digging on you guys, you know, uh, in trying to better understand what's going on, that's what I really like about it and about what you're doing is I think, you know, Chris, you mentioned, you know, hunters leading the way in conservation. That is something we as a hunting community I believe have always done since, you know, since let's say, you know, the, the, the turn of the last century. Um, 
here in North America. And I, and I think that's what's great about this is, is we're looking at it from the standpoint of what does what the data say? What are the facts? Okay, it might not always be something we ideally want to hear because I'm presuming, you know, the average, the average hunter, you ask them, would you rather pay uh, double for your ammo or whatever the cost differential is? Would you want to pay more for your ammo or less? Ideally, all things being equal, I'd love to pay less. I'd love to, I'd love to use an old technology that's a, that's a good old standby. But the reality is, there are implications to that. There, 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 there are other types of costs that aren't just the financial component, and that's what I think is really impressive about the work you guys are doing. Is saying, hey, this is this is within the community here. We're looking at these facts. What are the impacts of using of using uh, uh, lead as as that projectile? And I think you know, and maybe talk a little bit about this is you know the types of conversations that you have within the hunting community because I'm sure there are there are some people that really love what you're doing and other people are like you said, Chris, they're going to instantly think of of this or put it in a box of of a political vein of here's here's what that is okay it's california okay it's uh, esa related okay it's it's related to hunting something like that um but i think what you're doing in terms of looking at the reality of of things looking at the specifics of this is is important you know we had i think i'd mentioned you andrew a woman by the name of ellen candler here in minnesota a friend you know she's doing her um PhD doctoral work, I believe, or maybe it's some other related work on gut pile uh, predation. And so she came out to a bunch of us a, a couple of years ago and said, hey, can you leave your leave your your game cameras up, put them on your gut pile and and submit them? And so I did that. And I was really excited to see. I left it out for, I don't know, six months. And I was really excited to see what came out on the back end. And and I hadn't looked at it. It was two years ago. And I just looked at it before we got on the uh, on the recording here. And I saw pictures of, so here's here's the list. Blue Jay, Harry Woodpecker, Canada Jay, Juvenile Bald Eagle, Crow, two mature bald eagles took it over for about a week. Bobcat, Wolves, Raccoon, Porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> the porcupine was last one. It was coming in the next spring. I think he was just checking things out to see maybe to see what was there. But um, I mean, that's that's what we saw on there. And actually, for about for several weeks, there was movement I could see, but it was covered in snow, so I couldn't see what was what was on it. Um, and so, you know, I presume that could have been bears, other things. But um, I mean, that type of thing of let's look at this and understand what is what is eating from that gut pile. Let's look at the actual an- animal and the fragmentation of the bullet, what's happening there, I think is, I think is Im- important work. So I guess, Chris, what, you know, you've been doing this a long time. What, what is the reaction of the average hunter in terms of, of what you're, what you're talking about? Yeah. And, and we've done the same thing and we use those, those pictures. We're doing some work down in White Sands Missile Range with the Oryx hunting down there. And same thing, we're putting gut pile cameras up and we're quantifying. We have over a million photographs that we're processing and analyzing right now. And that will turn into deliverables to share with those hunters who, because we asked them, they participated in giving us coordinates and we were able to put cameras on them. And when you show them the pictures, of course, it all makes sense in retrospect, but their average response, and I would ask these two guys as well, what's the average response? Holy crap, I had no idea. And what we're identifying is the potential and a pathway for potential lead exposure. 
We're not saying that it's going to poison and kill wildlife. You hear that sometimes and people, people speak really loosely about the assumptions. And we're really careful to try and eliminate those assumptions and say, all we've done is demonstrate the pathway of potential exposure. And what we're trying to make the appeal for is if you want to take actions to eliminate the potential for exposure, look at what you're doing as a representation of our conservation ethic as individual hunters. It's an opportunity. And so I'd say that the number one response is, I had no idea. And I told this story yesterday, and, and, I'm, and I talk too much, and I'm going to tell this story because I think it's impactful. I did a shoot in Wisconsin a couple weeks ago. And whenever we do a, a, a ballistics day, if you will, with, with a bunch of groups, we try to get as many sports groups and agency folks out as possible when they're ready to have us because it's contentious. But when they're ready to have us, we give this presentation. It's a three-part presentation. Well, I was trying to condense three different hour-long presentations into about 15 minutes. And in doing so, I could see one of the gentlemen in the crowd had the arms crossed and the, uh, you know, the veins pumping and the red face. And I could tell this guy was going to rip us a new one. You know, he was going to tell us how this is all BS. And he listened to everything. And the body language was, no, no, I ain't buying it. I ain't buying it. We went out to the range and we shot into the ballistics barrels that we use and ballistics gel. We shot into the left barrel with lead, the right barrel with non-lead. I took the top off of the barrel and he peeked in there and he looked at all the fragments in the bottom of the barrel, grabbed the, the slug of the bullet and held it up and everybody can see, yep, that's what I see in my animal sometimes. But what he did is said, oh, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And it took everybody by surprise because this guy was like he was the only one there, right? And we were all quiet. And he goes, I, I, I had no idea. I, I am so sorry. I, I didn't know. And, and it was such an aha moment that it was, I just, I could have hugged him because he demonstrated what we have all gone through. Upon receiving new information, he went through it right there. And his realization, it, it was, it was awesome. So that's the problem. It's not that hunters don't care is that we've not been fed or in the lines of communication that are out there, whether it's the media or whatever, we've not had the opportunity for the most part to have a, a real intimate understanding of this pathway. And when we are able to demonstrate it, that is most commonly the response. Now, we've also had the response where some people say, well, I get it, but I don't think there's a real high probability, so I don't want to change. And that's fine. That's personal choice. But nine times out of 10, they say, I had no idea. And that compels them to think more about it. But does it really change behavior? And that's where we jump into incentivized programs, where we're not going to just drop people off and leave them there. We're going to work to build programs that say, hey, and we also understand that this is new. It's hard to find. Well, almost impossible to find any ammo right now. But we can work to incentivize and keep them in the process of, of helping them overcome those barriers to making the switch, like letting them try various grain weights of a, very, of, of a particular caliber of bullet. And so, I've, as I said, talk way too much, but let these guys tell you about the, the uh, demos that we do and how we help people overcome those barriers. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I wish people had you know, that kind of demonstration across the country, because, you know, I'm, I'm coming on the back end in California, and I can't speak 
to what it was like 10 years ago when um, all the legislation, the raft of legislation came in. But now I can speak to the fact that there is genuine concern about it, you know, <laughs> that, that it is a political issue, even though we know the facts behind it. You know, there's, there's a raft of studies that can prove that the fragmentation rates are, you know, contributing to the exposure of wildlife species, but that's not really how it was framed in my project area. Uh, I have a lot of people that are, I, I, I serve as a bit of a, um, a therapist in, in, in state, more or less. <laughs> a lot of people getting out their frustration, but a lot of these presentations, like the water demonstration, we walk around with a lot of epoxies that we'll do some live demos with, with ammo as well. And I get a lot of that same uh, reaction as well. It's just something you don't really think about. In fact, my first experience with it was with Leland in Oregon. I was working on the uh, east side of the state. I came over to uh, Bend and he was hosting an event there. He had all of his epoxies, had all of his gels and everything. And I can vividly remember that that moment as well of like, I just, I didn't realize, you know, you just don't think about this thing when it's out in the woods, you're shooting it, you know that it works. I've got dozens of whitetail that I'd stacked up and I knew that lead worked for that, but I didn't realize the impacts behind it as well. So um, connecting people to that issue is really important uh, moving forward, you know, to make any changes. Yeah, no, you know, and it's interesting because it, it, um, that what a great story, Chris, of you know your your trip to Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago and that guy's reaction. Um, you know, for me, I'll, I'll be honest. First time I, I saw you guys, like I said, out in Montana five years ago, whatever it was, and and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I think that's I think that's good. But you know, that's I, I got I got a bunch of lead sitting in in my closet at home, and I bought it already, and you know. Why would I switch? Like you, like, like you said, Andrew. You know, I got, I got a bunch of white tails I've killed with that just fine, and family's been, you know, e- e- eating that that meat. So, you know, what's what's the problem? And and I think it's it's one of those things of where there probably doesn't feel like there's a lot of urgency always, but I think that that reality of being able to see things firsthand is is important. And um, and I and I think it's a question. You know, some people will say, "Well, why change?" And you could flip it around and say, well, why not? Um, why, why, why don't we just take the lead and, and be more responsible with this? And I think it's, you know, maybe talk a little bit about you guys, uh, you know, the, the aspect of, uh, federal legislation with waterfall 1990 was it 90 or 91 91. i forget 91 86 through 91 was the phase in process phase in process okay you know and and i will say you know you know and this is the discussion that always gets had um uh is is performance you know guys will swear by lead and say say that nothing compares to it and i will say i mean you know, in the nineties, when I was shooting waterfall out in Western Minnesota and Dakota, and, and I was shooting steel BBs at Canada goose 20 yards up and it was just bouncing off and they just keep flying. It wouldn't go. I was frustrated with, with it, even though I knew it was the right thing to do, but it's like the performance wasn't there. So maybe talk a little bit about, I guess, sort of two questions. One is what's the difference between federal mandate of, of, of waterfall, uh, loads. And number two, 
you know, what's the difference in performance when it, when you look at lead versus versus non-lead for single projectile? Well, there, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, <laughs> I know I so, throw out too much. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's let's start with just the performance, right? I mean, we have to remember that ammunition is a technology and it's a constantly evolving technology. I mean, we see new innovations coming out every year. You also have to remember that non-lead bullets, although we it's fairly new in the scheme of things, you know, the most successful non-lead bullet on the market was launched in the 80s um, with the Barnes bullet. They were kind of the original um, successful non-lead bullet. And it wasn't because they wanted to be some greeny environmental group. They wanted a bullet that worked better, right? When we talk about performance on big game, especially one of the main components we're usually looking for is expansion and weight retention. And that's where non-lead bullets generally shine. They expand consistently. They retain over 95% of the weight, usually 98, 99% of the weight, which gives you great penetration, consistent wound channels, um, good flexibility. And that, you know, that's kind of the same process all of us have gone through. You heard Andrew talking about, oh, I didn't know about the fragmentation, but then at the same time, okay, I didn't know, but then what's the next step? I use non-lead. Now I have to learn about the performance and make sure that it's working well. And we've all gone through this. And it's something we try to make sure we remember in all these conversations is that we're usually talking to people who are where we were several years ago. And so we're not trying to get them right to where we are. We're just trying to get them started down the path and help them through that. You know, I remember... You know, it was 2009, I, I got introduced to non-lead ammunition for a feral pig project, and I had that exact same response. Well, what is that? How does it work? Why would I use it? The lead bullets I've been using work just fine. They work great. And then I went through that process. I went through the exact same thing Andrew said. Okay, I looked at some of the science. Holy crap, I never knew. Practicing biologists, invasive species removal, dealing with ammunition all the time, I didn't know. How we expect the general public of hunters to know if we don't know as biologists is just ridiculous, right? We have to share that information. And then we have to share the information on performance. And that was my next step because I'm not going to be involved in a project shooting animals that just wounds animals, right? No one wants to do that. So you go through the process of testing. You do a lot of these different things, whether it's accuracy testing or being lucky enough to use ballistic media or other things and testing it, which I was lucky enough to do, be able to shoot into a ballistic gel and see what terminal performance looks like, look at all the different variables of that terminal performance across varying ranges, and then actually get into the field and use it. Um, and I've been extremely lucky in my career um, in that I got to do a lot of invasive species removal projects. So I basically got paid to go hunt animals and I got to use a lot of different types of ammunition and shoot a lot of different animals and see what performance looked like. And I'll tell you right now, I'm using non-lead from now on. It just gives me a much better range of performance in, in the way that I look at variables, whether it's consistency of expansion, um, 
consistency of penetration, ability to choose varying shot angles, ability to break bone if I need to, especially with a new hunter, that's really helpful. Being able to punch through a shoulder and not worry about fragmentation and losing a ton of meat while we're doing that. Um, all of these different things and the wound channels and all of that combined. And there's good research out there these days that are looking at those things as well. So you're you're saying that non-lead is superior to lead. Is that what I'm hearing you say, Leland? For for the consideration that I make, yes, for okay. the variables that I consider. For some people, you know, they have right. they have different considerations that they're worried about. But my understanding and the way I look at damage um, terminal performance, what I see is consistency in the non-lead bullets. Um, that I find to be hugely beneficial for me and for, um, I believe, for new hunters as well, especially um, with that ability to maintain weight through bone. So how do you, you guys are talking about this all the time with people. You've heard all the detractors. You've heard all the guys say, absolutely not. What what have you found, if if you feel that strongly about it, Leland, what have you found to be the most effective thing to in a discussion to to get somebody to go oh okay well maybe maybe I'll try it maybe it's worth a shot even though I still don't believe it can be nearly as effective as lead well I mean that, there's a lot of variables there right um, what what I've found is just a discussion of what they're looking for from performance um, in big game especially you know talking about what the concerns are what what I'm considering when I'm choosing ammunition, um, what I like about non-lead ammunition with the weight retention, expansion, penetration, and why I like that. Um, because a lot of times we're considering the same things. We're just maybe talking about them slightly differently. But if I can explain my process, um, then that gives other the other folks a chance to review what they're considerations are and see where there's um, where we share some of those thoughts um, and really what we're looking for what I think all hunters share is a quick successful kill um, we don't want animals suffering we don't want to deal with chasing animals down we don't want to lose animals um, and that's that's pretty important for every single person I've talked to um, so being able to talk about my experience doing that has has been kind of the way the way I've been able to approach that. Yeah. And comfortability is key on really any round, you know, like he says, you know, the performance you can get in, in depth to that, but it's really about what application everybody's using it for. You know, I, I talk to a, a fair amount of pest controllers out here that need frangible rounds. Um, I try to connect them with those type of rounds, but you know, it's all about comfortability and actually trying it out. Uh, we are to the point in California where we've seen people that have uh, came into the hunting realm and only experienced non-lead ammunition within the state because they lived in the first established condor zone. Um, so they, you know, always had to shoot these center fire rounds and they have no concerns about it. They've always, they've, they've had a lot of uh, success with it. They've, you know, taking down pigs, deer, they love it, but it's about comfortability. Um, and not just with a round, but with that rifle, um, I can tell you exactly what shoots well out of my mo model 700, but 
I can't tell you what's going to shoot out of another guy's gun. I could just say to practice and um, see what works for you. That's, that's really what it's all about. So Andrew, you just use a term that I'd like you to explain for the, for the listeners, frangibility. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, frangible rounds um, for anybody that coyote hunts or does pest control, frangible rounds are designed to expand and release energy rapidly. So they got a really thin jacket around a core of either lead or copper powder, um, but a powdered form so that it breaks down rapidly. You know, it's the uh, exact opposite of like the monolithic design that's meant to hold its uh, uh, shape and hold its weight, but uh, it's very effective. And again, there is non-lead rounds available. Uh, with my 17 HMR, like I, I've got rounds that were outperform lead. So, um, you know, we, uh, yeah, the frangibility. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, good, thanks. The, the so, thing to remember with frangibility is, you know, people will hear that say, oh, well, it dumps its energy really quickly, but it does it over a shallow area. Um, mm-hmm. So for small game, that can work really well. It's not something you necessarily want to be using for big game because you don't get the penetration to create damage into the vital organs you need to hit. So it's about choosing the design to match your application. Like Andrew said, small game, squirrels, ground squirrels, coyotes, things like that. Frangibility can work great. Probably not a great choice for deer or moose or elk because you won't get deep enough to damage the organs you need to, to actually be effective. So let's let's uh, let's go down down the path of of uh, of small game because you know we we just did a, a co-hosted a a small game a squirrel hunt with new hunters a few weeks ago with the Minnesota Land Trust where we g- gained access to private property in southeast Minnesota where new hunters were able to go out for their first hunt. And we went after squirrels. Um, now we were using shotguns in this case and we were using non-toxic shot. Um, but um, obviously a lot, a lot of small game hunters, squirrel hunters are going to use 22s um, of which um, non-toxic or non-lead uh, ammo is, is not a very common thing. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Who wants to jump in? I feel like I've been talking a lot. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, 22, we'll just start with that. 22 is a challenging one. You know, you're talking about a cartridge design from 1860s. Um, it doesn't necessarily adapt as well to new materials as some of the Spitzer style or kind of pointed style of bullets that you see in most centerfire firearms or even in like the 17 HMR. Um, so it creates kind of a unique challenge for manufacturers. We've seen great strides in the technology around 22 with CCI's, you know, copper 22 bullets. And now I think Norma's making a 22 bullet that seems to be working pretty well. Um, so there are some options out there, you know, for, from a wildlife perspective with small game, as long as you're not losing animals and you're taking them out whole, you're removing that risk still. Right. So you're, you're not creating that potential pathway because you're removing the entire animal and you're removing that f- potential food source. Um, the other thing is that fragmentation is often driven by velocity. So we don't see as much fragmentation with kind of the slower rounds like 22 as we do with some, something like, you know, a, a center fire big game rifle because it's just not going as fast. That doesn't mean it's zero. It just means it's less 
Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of the basic. Um, the one thing you can't predict is, uh, you know, if you lose an animal, right? Now, that potential then still exists. Um, so it is a consideration. Yeah, I just had uh, one of our new hunters uh, texting me when I was in the deer stand the other day. He had a squirrel he, he shot in a tree and it ran up into a crotch and died up in the tree. So like there's an example of where... Yeah, sure. it's birds going to come at some point, you know, I suppose eagle or hawk or something. Um, yeah, there's but, been but, some recent work looking at fragmentation of, of rounds like that, um, particularly in ground squirrels in Oregon. You know, they, they ground squirrel hunt a lot in uh, eastern Oregon and there's alfalfa pivots in the high desert because they're a pest species. They eat up, they can eat like 40% of the crop at certain times if they're not managed. Um, so shooting is, is one of the ways they do that. It's also an income source for some of those farmers. Um, but what they found is that there is fragmentation happening there. And those are a species that aren't picked up usually. So they actually, um, do create that potential pathway of exposure from kind of that varmint style of hunting or, or shooting. Gotcha. So let, I want to shift gears here for, for a second. Leland, you just said something and it made me think of actually, Chris, a presentation I saw online on YouTube that you gave a few years ago. Um, and I forget who it was too. Um, but you just, Leland, you just mentioned in terms of like small game hunting, you're taking that, that factor, that food source out of the environment and therefore you're removing that risk to the wildlife. Um, so now this gets to the question of, I, I think I heard you say, Chris, that, that you have, you really don't go down the path of having a conversation about the risk to humans. Uh, I'm and, so glad that somebody <laughs> observed that finally, because usually it's like, we're fear mongering, we're threatening people and telling them they're poisoning their family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, we're, we're careful because one, that's not our expertise. Um, and we can tell you about the percentage of, of packaged ground meat that contained lead in the studies we did, but we're not going to sit here and tell you what's good for you. We're just going to say what the science says and that, that there is a pathway, there is a potential, and there's even a probability. What you choose to do with that is your choice. And that's important. So, um, yeah, some people say, and, and again, these are from observations and responses in the field. Some people say, well, wait a second. This is in the meat that we eat. And I say, it, yeah, it can be for sure. We've, we've demonstrated that in the studies. Well, I don't want to eat that. It's like, there you go. Then don't. You can avoid it. <laughs> um, and for me personally, yeah, I always tell the story. And I guess it's more of the same. But when we were doing that deer study in Montana, we would take those deer, what, 30 deer, to 30 different processors for that part of the study because we wanted to make sure it wasn't one processor. You know, you hear the horror stories about, oh, all everybody's deer goes in and it's all mixed up and, and uh, some, some don't trim as much of the bloodshot away and that's why there's more lead or less lead, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all that's true. So we went to 30 different processors with 30 different deer. That meant that when we shot a dozen deer one day, we had to wait a couple of days because our drivers were driving across the state of Wyoming to take those deer to processors. That meant we had a couple of days where we weren't shooting for, for a living. So we decided to go to Montana and go bird hunting. And 
we had bird dogs and we have falcons that we hunt with and we gun hunted as well. And uh, I was telling my wife one evening, hey, this is great. Not only are we going to have all this meat from this study, because we each bought five over-the-counter tags for the study. Not only are we going to have all this meat from the study for the deer, we also have pheasants and huns and sharp tails. And she goes, oh, cool. What did you shoot them with? And I'm like, well, the huns I shot with my 410 and the sharp tails I shot with my 20. And I did shoot a couple of pheasant with my, my 12 gauge. She goes, no, what kind of ammo? I was like, oh. <laughs> well, uh, same stuff I've shot my whole life, lead. Yeah, she yeah. goes, really? Do you yeah. think that's not a possibility for exposure? And I was like, oh, yeah. What about if I lost a bird? And what about taking that home? So for a personal decision, I was able to make a personal decision with my wife, and she pointed out the obvious, and we changed our behavior because of that. This is the process we all go through. And so it's reiterating a, a point we made earlier, but yeah. Um, it can sometimes be slow to make change. And I think really that's something we haven't talked about. Why is this such a big deal? Because change is hard for all of us. We don't like to change unless we think that changing like those fancy optics and probably shouldn't say trade names here, but um, yeah, people say, well, my granddad shot with this old gun. And it's like, yeah, your granddad didn't drive an F-350, uh, a new one either, or didn't have uh, all the fanciness that we take to the field. So it's didn't not all that finder. we <laughs> didn't have a rangefinder. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, so I guess I would argue and say that, that um, you know, we, we take to the field what we can afford that, we believe increases our probability of success and enjoyment. And considering that now there's a conservation component for consideration that even if it does cost more, but, but we brought this up earlier too. If you compare like products, premium rifle ammunition, and you look at the cost between lead and non-lead, there is no difference in cost. It's the same. But again, I know some people are going to respond when they hear this, say, yeah, we can't find any ammo right now. True enough. True enough. But when it comes on the market and if you're looking at premium ammo and if you're considering making the switch only for those animals that we actually shoot, how many rounds per year is that? If it's a deer hunter on the Kaibab Plateau in Arizona, you can use one box for a lifetime because you can't get drawn but every 10 or 12 years. So, you know, it, it's, it, that brings up another point that we're just talking about when the remains of an animal that's been shot is left and as part of the food chain, that's where the potential for exposure exists. So we're not talking about switching for target practice. We're not talking about that. I mean, hell, I, I too have cabinets full of lead ammo that I use at the range to practice my techniques. So that's another good point, I think. Yeah. Is that what you guys um, advocate for uh, with existing lead ammo is use it for, for target loads or what? On established ranges, especially, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't want to go out and be trashing areas either. I mean, that's something we deal with a, a lot all over the place, right? People going to places <laughs> and bringing their washing machine or whatever. And there's a number of organizations, like I've worked with Oregon Hunters Association and gone and done kind of these range range in quotes cleanups um, <laughs> it's a mess and nobody's happy about that but working on established ranges if you have access to one there's a lot of ways that they can mitigate and recycle that lead even um, it's a great way to use ammunition and practice and make sure your skills are sharp um, and often you can find a, a type of ammunition that will shoot pretty close 
Um, and so switching isn't a huge, you know, in between when you switch over to your hunting ammo, it's not that big a deal. And how many people are doing that anyway, when they're shooting a lot and they got their premium ammo they used to hunt and maybe they go out and practice with something that's a little bit less expensive. And that's gotten a lot better, man. That Wisconsin hunt, I had two uh, rather new boxes of of, uh, Hornady. Oh, I don't know if we can say trade names here. Yeah, no, no, go for it. Yeah, all right. Well, I I love I love all the ammo. If if we can find it, I'll shoot it all in different (laughs) applications. But I shot um, uh, Hornady. I think it was uh, well. I don't remember the. I think it was Interlock and GMX, um, and they papered the same. They were minute of angle, both of them at 100 yards. Now, that wasn't yeah. always the case. Yeah. I remember when I first switched to Barnes, and it was the old blue-coated uh, Barnes bullets. It was a standard Barnes X bullet with a blue coating. It wasn't Molly, but it's some type of a coating. And I would shoot the 168-grain uh, 30-06 uh, Barnes X that had the coating, and then I'd shoot a uh, oh, the old green and yellow box, you know, the thing we all grew up with. And uh, I'd put them on paper and my groups would be great, but they would be five inches apart. Hmm. And so we really had to emphasize, you know, we haven't mentioned this program that Arizona Game and Fish did, but um, that's back to Leland's point about what we did with the information we had about the local studies there and condors. We took it to Game and Fish and they shared it with the hunters and they asked for their support. And in doing so, they achieved for the last over a decade now, 87% voluntary participation. That demonstrates how hunters will respond to that. Um, But when I shot those first early rounds, man, they didn't paper well. And then we talked to the hunters that we surveyed in the field in Arizona. And they said, oh, yeah, I shot it. And I I shot it and and the deer didn't die. I don't know. I said, well, how did it paper when you went to the range before your hunt? (laughs) (laughs) And they said, Oh, well, I just assumed that it would shoot the same. I was like, come on, folks. You know darn well that you can have a 168 grain 30-06 bullet made by one company and then switch to another. The grain weights are the same, but the powder loads are different. The tolerances are different. They're not going to paper the same. You have to know your tools. And this gets back to something you said earlier about, you know, when I when we made the transition for waterfowl and our our impression and our observations of how effective it was. Well, if you look at the data from that transition and you look at the Fish and Wildlife Service and the harvest data, yes, initially there was an increase in crippling loss. But after a couple of years, when people started to learn how to use that new tool, the actual harvest rates went up and exceeded the harvest rates from before when they were using lead. So my analogy, and I speak in analogies because that's the way my simple brain works, is that, you know, you can frame a house with a sledgehammer, but it's a lot easier if you have a framing hammer. You have to know the difference in your tools for the right job. And once you accept that these tools may operate differently and you get to the point of, of competency in being comfortable and confident in what your bullet does, you can use it just as effectively as lead. And that's beyond the argument of which is better. Yeah, you can make yeah. them both work. Yeah, I think yeah. shot shells. Just my anecdotal evidence. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in 
shot shells of the last 10 years have just gotten so much, so much better. Um, you know, and it's, and it's exciting to see a lot of the innovations. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, Lee Chos, our friend Lee Chos right here in town was, was, uh, from boss was, is part of one of our online courses a talking partner, about shot shells. Partner. I know I saw, <laughs> I saw the logo on, on the site the other day. Yeah. That Lee's killer, great. man. Lee's a good guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was out at the range the other day shooting not, and I think I, I think Andrew, I might ask you guys this out out in Montana this summer, but um, I, I'm really I want to shoot an animal with these Nosler E tips. I haven't been able to yet, but I took them to the range a couple of weeks ago, and they were doing great. And my friend John McAdams, I don't know if you uh, know who John is. He's got the Big Game Hunter podcast. He was using those with a couple of new hunters a couple weeks ago, and they they took down a couple a couple deer uh, down down in uh, in Texas. And he said they worked great. And he's a big time ballistics guy. He, he's very geek, very much geeks out on all the specifics. But he was very happy with with that bullet. But um, how does I guess here's a question for you, and, and I'll just throw it out to the group, whoever wants to answer it. Um, what is the industry reaction uh, to what you guys are saying? I'm presuming it's they're not not the biggest fans of 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 what you're what you're trying to promote, are they? Uh, well, I mean, I I think industry will make ammunition that hunters, you know, and people who are purchasing ammunition want. Um, so I don't know that they're necessarily concerned. I I think. What we have seen is that our approach is probably the, a better one in, the, in that we're working with our community rather than um, going over the top through kind of the legislative or regulatory approach. And I think there's a lot of concerns about that because that in turn creates a lot of challenges for manufacturing. Um, you know, I, I, the few conversations that we've had with manufacturers, you know, they appreciate our care and consideration around this, as far as you can tell. Um, you know, they're they're making really good ammunition. If people want it, they'll make more of it. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know if I can. I don't really want to speak for industry, but so far that's kind of the way it, it seemed to go. Is is they're supportive of of people making a choice. And, you know, if they're making a choice for non-lead ammo, they're happy to provide good ammunition um, that works in the field. Yeah. Look at their advertisements. Their advertisements is no compromise with having to switch, things like that. Yeah. And I, and I will say this, and that one of the neatest things about since we formed the partnership, because we were all doing this work as, as has been demonstrated for you know, decades in different places. And we were having really good regional success, like I mentioned in Arizona with Arizona Game and Fish. Um, but we've had to define ourselves because this issue has become so polarized. We had to define ourselves as a group of fellow hunters sharing information and supporting voluntary use of non-lead ammunition for the sake of improving ecosystem health. That has been so successful in just since we launched in 2018 that now some of the groups, and I won't say their names, but the gun uh, uh, watchdogs, if you will, the watchdog groups out there, now if they hear something and they think we can help, 
they will call us and say, I got a little heartburn about the way this is moving over here in this region. Are you working with them or can you work with them? That's one hell of a sign that they that we have we have understanding now. That is fantastic. That is that's that's exciting because and that's what I think the approach again of what you guys are saying with the voluntary type of approach, um, not taking a legislative uh, tact is is great. Real quick, I mean, what I mean, Andrew, you're out there in California. I mean, there's is it now full? Like there is no. Is it all non-toxic for any type of hunting or what, what's the current state? And I mean, what are the pitfalls of, of doing legislative, taking a legislative approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, as of July, 2019, we are, uh, all hunting seasons are required to use non-lead ammunition while taking a wildlife. Um, so that's shotguns, rimfire, rifle, um, you name it. Um, and obviously that came right, uh, right before the pandemic we were in the middle of a we've been dealing with that ever since with shortages but you know touching back on the price issue like it we're actually kind of seeing regular you know prices kind of evening out now price gouging it in fact brought uh the levels quite similar so um we're seeing more of that but uh in terms of the issues in state obviously nobody wants to be told what to do nobody wants to you know especially with something that they've use for so long, something that they've uh, seen success with. It'd be like going up to a guy and telling him, you know, you need to replace the rubber on your tires. Um, even if there is a better scenario out there, a better material, um, it's going to be hard to make that change. Um, and again, it was not coming from within our community. You know, uh, I believe, Chris, you were able to uh, speak at the hearing for the original um uh, legislation, you might be able to talk more about that, but um, we've been against that from the beginning. Uh, again, it was not said with uh, hunters in mind. It was not uh, including our input. So uh, you can probably talk more about that, Chris. But I think you got it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah you know, uh, pe- yeah. Like people go say, look at this. They can go look at the transcripts. You know, yeah. because I was there speaking, and because I work for a raptor conservation group, the assumption was since a ban happened afterwards, we must have caused it. <laughs> but if you go back and listen to it, you'll you'll hear or read the transcripts that I was saying, "Hey, folks, let's not get the cart before the horse here. Um, hunters don't know about this, and we have proof because we're out there engaging hunters, and we can tell you that most of them just don't know." And if they don't know, and this looks like a, an attack on our gun rights, uh, good luck. Yeah. yeah, I think I think any any of those types of just flashpoint positioning, political types of approaches are are very short sighted, and uh, and so that's why I, I do like what uh, what you guys are are doing here. Well, you know, I know I know we could go on for hours and hours talking about this stuff. Um, but uh, but I know you guys have other things to get to. Is there so so if if experienced hunters, if new hunters, if people who are curious about hunting want to learn more about the work that you guys are doing, where should they go? Well, well there's two places to go. If you're looking to learn more about non-lead ammunition, how it works, and some of the research that's out there. Um, and some, you know, helpful tips on how to transition um, into a new type of ammunition. Huntingwithnonlead.org that Chris mentioned earlier is a, is a fantastic resource. Um, it's got a lot of info on there, and it's pretty helpful. 
Um, the other place to go is if you're looking for information about the partnership and the work that we're doing and who our partners are um, and the resolution of how we how we manage our work, um, nonledpartnership.org is the other place to go. And you can you know, see links to a lot of the podcasts and videos and other work that we have done and links to some of our partner organizations as well. Absolutely. And we also maintain some uh, social media sites as well. Um, we'd like to stick more to the ballistics and the effectiveness of these rounds. So, um, you know, we don't get as much into the biology side of things, but we have fun doing a little bit of redneck ballistic testing out there. So it's good times. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess I would add to that, if you want to have some fun, um, grab a festive beverage and go on to the social media and look at how some people respond. Um, and I feel for these guys because, man, it's real easy to just shoot from the hip, so to speak, in your comments on there when people have comments online. But I would also like to to take the opportunity to also point out that um, everybody reads these comments, folks. So um, if you look at some of the the pretty brash, um, pretty negative responses uh, and it's coming from fellow hunters, that too is representing us. So while you may have issues with it, I would encourage you to look on the website and get our phone number and call us and let's have a conversation. Because if it's just a bunch of mudslinging going on, that too represents us as hunters. So uh, I think we got to be careful with hunter image. We have support right now um, from the, you know, the big national surveys about, uh, you know, people and their views on hunting. And I think it's pretty important to the future of hunting that we pay attention to that. Yeah, I mean, that brings up a good point of well, why I'm still involved and excited about this is because the way I look at this is a way to protect and promote the future of hunting, to get more people involved, to get more people excited about hunting happening on the landscape, whether or not they hunt themselves, right? So as we're moving into the 21st century, you know, I want to see the hunting tradition continue and be strengthened. And I, I really view the, the choices of the use of non-lead ammunition and promoting good stewardship and all the habitat conservation that hunters do as a huge, like Chris said earlier, a huge opportunity for us to promote hunting to the public. And this is one where, you know, we do a lot of conservation around species that we hunt. Um, a lot of the species we're talking about here are not species we hunt. It's, you know, raptors, birds of prey, eagles, vultures, things like that. There's no real benefit to us as the hunting community to conserve those. It doesn't give us more species to hunt. It doesn't create new, new seasons or anything like that. But it fulfills our, our history and tradition as conservationists and shares that with the rest of the country as well. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think, uh, again, what you guys are doing very much falls within the realm of conservation leadership that, uh, that, that I think those of us who are in the community recognize and, and I hope that more and more of the general public realizes. And I think you guys are part of that narrative and continuing it in the right way. So I applaud you for uh, all of your work and uh, we'll make sure we'll put those links 
in the show notes on the website so that everybody can get access to your info. And, um, you know, as you find out more info, do new studies, et cetera, we'll have to, we'll have you back on and we'll talk about it more. And, uh, thanks. Thanks for all you guys are doing. Hey, thanks for having us. And Andrew, thanks for, yeah, getting the, getting us plugged in there. Um, it's a, it's a tough crowd to talk about non-lead with all three of us. And uh, I always, like I said at the beginning, I always feel like I talk too much, but wonderful opportunity. And thanks you, thank you for sharing it with your listeners. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, Mark, and especially during deer season. I mean, this you must be into this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't have my deer yet either. And I've got to oh, get man, out there with man. these Nostlery tips. There you go. Well, we're just going to have to plan the next podcast around a deer camp or something. Let's yeah. do that. There we go. Yeah, we'll show you <laughs> how it's done. Nah. There we go. Oh, that's big words. <laughs> big words. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, hey, you guys have a good yeah. one. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, take care, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.